Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, a beloved Hamilton icon has passed away. We talked with Steve Milton, who co-wrote the autobiography for Big Ange Mosca, a legend on the field and in the community. Marvin Ryder joins us from the DeGroote School of Business. He's going to help explain what's going on at the top of the Rogers Corporation. Big news happening south of the border. Reggie Cicchini, Global News Washington, is going to join us and talk about what's going on in Virginia with the gubernatorial race and how that's going to impact the upcoming elections. And even though Doug Ford hasn't put a vaccine mandate in place, many Ontario hospitals are doing so voluntarily. We'll give you the details on that as well. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. To begin with, uh, we honor a, a legend, a, a football legend, a wrestling legend, a community legend. Angela Mosca passed away this past weekend, as uh, indicated from a, a Facebook post from uh, Helen. Of course, Helen Mosca, his uh, husband, her wife, rather, for so many years. An incredible story and an incredible family. And there's so many different aspects to this uh, that we could talk about here. So many people in this community uh, knew Ange. He reached out to so many people, not just as an athlete, but as, as a community member and as a volunteer uh, to help uh, kids in, in many cases uh, to, to achieve their full potential, too. Steve Milton joined. Steve, of course, is an award-winning uh, columnist and author. Uh, he co-wrote uh, Angie's autobiography called Tell Me to My Face, and he joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to uh, reminisce about uh, a legend. Uh, Steve, great to have you on the program again. Uh, I think we knew inevitably about six years ago when the diagnosis was made that it was going to come to this end, but uh, it's still hard to believe that a, a mountain of a man like this uh, is gone now. Are we there, Steve? Yeah, I am. Sorry, Bill. Good. Uh, Low-tech low they call me. Yeah. <laughs> well, welcome to my world. You know all about that, too. <laughs> Broadcasting remotely now for the last 19 months. Uh, and every day is a, an adventure with me doing this. But anyway, uh, I just reminiscing there as we were hooking up here, Steve, right. about that day that you and Ange came in when the book was finally published. I remember that. that day and, uh, it, yeah, and, and you know, I've, I've known Ange for many, many years before that, as you did, too. Uh, that was the first day I actually saw him tear up when he started talking about some of those things. This this book was very personal to him, wasn't it? It was extremely personal, and uh, you know, sometimes I felt it was almost too personal. I felt I was intruding uh, sometimes, and uh, I've actually mentioned that to Helen a couple of times. But she said no, that this was necessary in, in Angie's life, and I think if people go back, I I hadn't looked at it actually since uh, the day I finished it, and so of course when Angie died, and, and you know, I did talk to the family on Saturday and. And, and trying not to bother them, and, and, and uh, I went back and read it, and, and I'd forgotten a few things, but I'd forgotten exactly how raw. I mean, I had forgotten how raw it was, but I'd forgotten exactly how raw it was. And uh, and I remember in the introduction to the book, I said I'd seen something that that very few people see, and that's Angela cry several times. And well, it it the writing of the book and the and, and the, the reasons that he ended up writing the book. Um, did make him um, he uh, much. It opened up a lot of things for him. Made him uh, much more sensitive, and, and I think uh, um, more, far more introspective uh, about what he'd been through in life, uh, both what had happened to him, and sometimes some of the, you know, naked pain he caused other people as well at times. And and uh, he's very honest about it, uh, and and uh, it was quite something. And I remember that he did tear up because every time he talked about certain things in it. Because there were some things that he'd only told his family recently, yeah. uh, a few years before. And, and for those of you who don't remember, uh, I'll tell you this, that, that, it was, that, that, uh, that his mother was black, or, or at least in those days it was called mulatto, because his grandmother was, was African-American. And his father 
was white, uh, shamed the family into hiding that, and he was forced all of his life, he felt, uh, to, to not talk about it, and, and never told his children until they were grown, and, and, uh, and Helen worked with him on that a lot, and, and, uh, um, um, and also the, the spectacular abuse. I talked to his sister Carol a lot about that as well. Spectacular abuse that went on in that family, and and uh, it, it it and Angelo, you know, he, he a lot of times he used humor to cover that up. Uh, he's a locker room guy. It's why his friendships were so important to him. Uh, it's why he lived on his cell phone uh, oh, yeah. because he was always in contact with people. I don't, I, I mean, I'm sure he spent time with him, and and I'll, I I don't I don't ever remember time being with him. I was with him a lot. Uh, over a period of seven or eight years, um, th- that uh, that he didn't get a couple phone calls while we were together all the time. So, yeah, yeah. And you knew him better and longer than I did. My guess is. Well, from a personal standpoint, I mean, obviously as the football player, when I, you know, covering the, the football team, right. etc. But I mean, you tend to forget when you put these things in perspective. He retired from football in 1972, right after they won the Great Cup. Forty-nine Cup. years ago. And uh, and you figure, and as, as I said in the commentary, I mean, you know, athletes come and go here in professional sports, and especially in the Canadian Football League, the Americans, a lot of them come up here and do very well uh, in this game, but uh, they usually spend their off-seasons back in whatever home they live in down in the States, and usually after they retire, they gravitate back to where they, they came from, and, and some stay in touch, some don't. Ange came here and, and made Hamilton home. I mean, there were some variations. I know that you know he lived sure. in Caledon for a little while, but that was only because he had to be close to the airport because he was wrestling all the time. Right, and, and, and St. Catharines, but he was, in, yeah. he was here every day. Yeah. I mean, he even when he was day, living... He lived he, in those two places. When, he, when Helen and he had bought the place down in, in, in Niagara, I mean, you're right, yeah, he drove up here every day. You know, yeah. Helen would drop my, what, what's going on? He'd have breakfast with Bernie Morelli and a couple of the other guys, the old crew there at, at a downtown uh, restaurant. And, and he basically spent every day here with somebody because there was always something going on or always somebody that said, Ange, can you help us out with something? Well, it's funny. I'll run this by a bill. There's something I wrote, I don't know. I think when the diagnosis first came is that, 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 and I'll see what you think about it, if it's true or not. If you take a look, and we'll just take Canada, take an athlete that so stands for his city and completely un- unequivocally identified with that city, what it stands for, who it are, and even if sometimes those are stereotypes. I can think of two that, that, that are totally, I mean, you can say, yeah, there's some great ones that did this or that, people put the Maple Leafs, or just got played for that, and, but if you, t- I think there's probably only two, and even one of them you'd have to argue. Angelo Mosca in Hamilton, and John Bellavo in Montreal, and even in Montreal you could argue you got to throw the rocket in there somewhere. Yeah. But but really you, you you couldn't you can't do that with Toronto. You can't do that with Vancouver. You can't do it with any other. You can do it with a lot of the small towns around. But uh, and maybe that's what this is. Maybe this is a whole bunch of small towns piled on top of each other, which I've always said about Hamilton. Mm-hmm. And and uh, it, it uh, but what do you think? I mean, I I can't think of a, another uh, another. Another athlete. Well, the only other one that comes to mind is, is Bobby Orr in Boston. I mean, a guy from Perry Sound. Yeah, Sound, I, the, I meant in Canada, the, but you're right. Bobby yeah. Orr in Boston, but even there, you got Bob Cousy. Yeah, you know, exactly. Like Bill Russell, you know, like, I mean, I'm talking completely and utterly one thing. He came uh, here to play football, but the, the, 
he he superseded that in so many different ways. I mean, we knew him as Ange Mosca, the wrestler too, and and certainly as yeah. a football player. But he always had this community presence, and and you know that that goes to not just his commitment to the city, but his personality. I mean, he was a, a he, he was a, an incredible talent, and as you mentioned, a great raconteur. He had a million and one stories. He told stories well, uh, and he was so relatable I mean, because he came from humble beginnings, as you mentioned in the book. I mean, well, it, it, humble. Yeah, it was he was a he was an abusive relationship. Both his parents, as you mentioned in the book, were alcoholics. Uh, I'm sure both dealing with the demons that they talked about, including the you know the, the heritage, uh, you know. And he he that day that you guys were in studio with me, I mean, one of the reasons he broke down and cried, he says, you know, if people knew that I was part black, then he says, I don't know if I would be playing football today. Uh, yeah. You know, they, it was in it, in his mind at that time. It was absolutely important that he keep that a secret uh, because yeah. he was afraid it was going to ruin his career, and he might have well have yeah. been right. Uh, and it's hard for people to understand that. And it, it, uh, unless you know Boston, and uh, from all my years with the Jays, and uh, you know, and spent a lot of time. Yeah, I probably spent uh, two hundred nights in Boston in and around that. It, unless you know, you don't understand that uh, that outside of the South, particularly in the in the, in the late forties and fifties, when Ange was most affected and most doing his growing up there, it was by far the most racist part of the north uh the, the non-south and it was i mean you remember that they didn't they, they, it, it, baseball integrated uh, uh what in 1947 the first uh african-american red sox was 1962 yeah they were the last team in major league baseball to actually the integrate on their by 15 years yeah uh, to do it and 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 even in recent years you've seen an awful lot of uh trouble between uh, um, black athletes and, and police there and those kinds of things. So it, 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 it's, 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 a, it's a real thing. Um, going back to Ange and, and arriving here, uh, though, and, and, you know, he came here to play football. Here's something I've forgotten. I'm glad I did have a quick look at that book. And um, Ange worked at Stelco before he played for the Ticats. He needed a job right away. He, 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 sure. He, he got here before training camp. And uh, so he, he was – and it wasn't shuffling paper. He was – it was – yeah, the way he described it. Now, let's remember, Ange loves to embellish, and he's, like all great rappers, <laughs> there's some exaggeration there. But he talked about you know shoveling a molten um, uh, metal seal off off the floor, and he hadn't had yet to practice with the Tiger Cats. And but that was another. Go ahead. And no, go ahead. Another part of you that's for part of it that's for Ange. As soon as he got here, he went to see Bob Hanley at the Spec and Norm Marshall at CHCH. Right, and started and, and, and basically volunteered for an interview and gave him very colors. He hadn't played yet. Hello, Angelo. Well, that was it. I mean, uh, the, nobody knew promotion. Well, which... like this, but... No, the part of the allure, though, is, as he told us back when, when he decided to come here, was uh, the NFL, everybody thinks of this monolithic, you know, sports enterprise, and it certainly is, uh, but it was on very humble beginnings back in those days. As a matter of fact, he said, I got uh, uh, my, the offer from Hamilton was more money than Philadelphia was going to pay me, and a lot okay. of guys came up there. And uh, talk, the dollar, I, don't forget, too. We had yeah, and I was, talk, I was talking to Russ Jackson last week after the the, the great you know, tribute they finally gave to him. We were talking about the guys that he had to, to beat out for a job, you know, the, uh, you know, how so many different players, Jackie Parker, Bernie Filoni, these guys were like Heisman Trophy winners, and they came to Canada because there was more money here. Plus, right. as you mentioned, a promise of a job, because nobody yeah. made that much money in football to say, okay, this is going to be my living. So you can get a job at the steel mill, and you can play football for us and make more money, and that, that was it for Ange. He said, yeah, I'm going up there. Yeah, it's funny. You know, be, uh, 
uh, an awful lot of uh, what we do in the CFL today is still based on that. Uh, um, the, the, oh, you can work, you know, and, and very few people do because to be a full-time athlete is a real, it's a full-time job to be a professional athlete now. But yeah. that's one of the reasons uh, is they only practice two and a half hours a day. You know, is that there's supposed to be room for now? They changed it. They used to start later in the day, uh, but uh, and, and of course, the reality is that most players do not have a second job, particularly you know during the season. You know, so it, it uh, uh, that's left over from that era. But it was a very big thing, and it's one of the reasons Hamlet was uh, able to attract uh, uh, not only players but a certain type of players because some of those jobs that they got weren't easy jobs. I mean, some of them were. Some of them were were uh, you know basically. Uh, um, paper postings, you know, they they just yeah. show up. But some of the, I mean, some of these guys really worked worked hard work. And when you did the research and talked to Ange about yeah. his early life, Steve, I got to ask you. I know we're running short on time. We can do this for the next three hours. But yes. when you found about his background, what happened in Boston, some of the things he did in college, and frankly, some of the things he did when he got up here too. I mean, he he lived on the edge an awful lot of the time. Yes, he did. Were you were you surprised that he was able to put that behind him and transition into this this wonderful community oriented human being? Because a lot of guys don't make that trip, and they they they, they stay in those dark shadows, and it has an impact on their lives. And well, got, I know I know Helen had a lot to do with that, but you know, uh, I was just going to say, I was just going to say, Hel- he didn't put all of it behind him. Uh, uh, I mean, he did some of those things simultaneously. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, well, you know it was some of the things that would be, might be questionable and and also charitable. I mean, he never ever was a guy. Even when he was a wild party guy in the in the in the fifties, he never was a guy who would turn down somebody um, for for uh, you know autographs or no. you know like kids those kinds of things. But you hit the nail on the head with Helen and and uh, and don't, and I don't think you can forget the support of his children as well. Yeah, uh, who who really uh, just were very supportive of him, particularly in his last uh, twenty years, and uh, and, and uh, you know, and I want to shout out to them. I'm sure uh, that they're. I, I don't know if they're listening or not, but uh, well, he took know, he talked about that in the book, didn't he? Right yes, he did. You know, as as he got into his later years, and I guess you you get reflective at that age, and just how much his family meant to him, not just Helen, but the kids as well, uh, and and and, and, and some regrets too. Yeah, because yeah, he he puts he put them through some rough times, and you know there was some regret there too. But also a feeling that you know I've still got them, and I, I can hang on to them. And he he I guess to a certain extent even tried to build some uh, bend some fences with family members, and was well, able to do that in his family. later years. They're, they're they're great, loving, extended family from both sides, blended and extended, and and it goes, it, you know, it's a lot of branches to it, and and they're horribly grieving right now, and and uh, yeah, I I've got a lot of time. For uh, well, of course I do. Uh, for for Helen and the kid and 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 Jalo's children, um, the they are they, they are quite something. Uh, I wish we had more time. Uh, there'll be lots more opportunity, I think, in the the days and weeks ahead. Uh, final arrangements are being made, and I know there are yeah. going to be tributes and so many other things coming up. Yeah, I think uh, they'll be some of the Ticat games on uh, November 20th. I can't I'm sure they will, yeah. They are. yeah. I know those discussions are already ongoing, are. and and lots more to come on this. Uh, you, got, you had me thumbing through the book again over the weekend, too, yeah. Steve. Uh, thanks for spending some time with us. I really thanks, do appreciate it. Thanks for it. taking the time. Appreciate it. All right. Thank I'm you. at the stadium now. That's, pretty, that's, uh, that's very fitting. Yeah, I, oh, and now, now you get me off on another tangent about how these guys that are playing football now in 2021, uh, every time Ange used to come to practice, they just there's Ange Mosca, and these guys would gravitate to him because they uh, knew the legend. 
yeah. unbelievable. Uh, Zach Calero uh, tweeted heavily about it on the weekend, yep. and Mike Filer and 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 and, and uh, Simone and all kinds of people. It, it you know, it's a testament. I mean, it is. I'm just a giant of a man. Sure was. Thanks again, Steve. Take care. Okay. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Right now, though, I want to uh, do a follow-up on a piece we talked about last week, and, of course, that was the uh, family squabble that turned into a corporate squabble at Rogers Communications, Telecommunications, and uh, it had to do with one Edward Rogers, of course, who was the uh, big cheese patty there with the organization, Uh, and he basically fired the board of directors because they uh, did not support what he wanted to have done with the company. Uh, They tried to fire him, and they couldn't. It ended up in court in B.C., and a BC court has now ruled that Edward Rogers is the legitimate chair of Rogers Communications Incorporated. It's a major legal victory. Uh, who saw this coming, and what are the implications? Well, we'll ask Marvin Wright of that. Marvin, of course, is a professor uh, with the DeGroote School of Business of McMaster University uh, in Hamilton. Uh, Marvin, a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Glad to be with you today, Bill. Marvin, you've never been one to say I told you so, but you were appearing on the show last week, and you said, I think he's going to win, and he did. Uh, what, what were the indicators for you? Well... Uh, Bill, uh, just to just to back things up a little bit here, you'll remember that he tried to fire the CEO. The board said, "No, no, we like our CEO. In fact, what we're going to do is fire you." So they removed him as chair of the board. That was on a Thursday. On Sunday, he convened a meeting of the family trust on very little uh, notice. The family trust trolls 97.5% of the voting shares of the company. At that meeting, he fired the independent members of the board. Uh, There's five of those. He couldn't get rid of the family members, but he could get rid of the uh, independent people. Uh, Put five new people in and held a meeting with them, and the very first thing they did was reinstate him as chair. And the sisters and the mothers said, wait a minute here, this is all wrong. So this is what they took to court. And the whole question was very narrow. The very narrow question was, was that a duly called meeting? In essence, could he do what he did? And the court heard those arguments last Monday, a week ago today. And Friday, after the stock had stopped trading, after the close of the business day, the judge ruled that, yes, he could call a meeting on zero notice. He could, at that meeting, using the power of the family trust, where he is still chair of the family trust, he could use that to replace those people with just a stroke of a pen, put a new board in place, and yes, because a majority of those people voted for him, he's now chair of the board. So here's the good news. We have clarity as to who's chair of the board. We have clarity as actually who's on the board now. But it still is a little surprising that he could do this all with a stroke of a pen. And, Bill, if I had been asked to be one of those new board members, realizing that I serve completely at the pleasure of uh, Edward Rogers, I would have a sinking feeling in my stomach. Because in the future, if I ever disagreed with Edward Rogers on something on the board and voted that way, I suspect the next day I would be removed and replaced. How do you get independent board members? How do you get independent advice if the chair can simply remove you with a stroke of a pen? That's not the court's issue. The court said, given the rules within the company, given the rules in British Columbia where the company is incorporated, he didn't do anything wrong. All of that is perfectly legal. But the question today is, if you were a holder of the B-class shares, these are the non-voting shares, which lets you ride in the car with them, but you can't steer at all, uh, are you happy with that? And I'll be interested to see how those shares trade today. There may be some B-class shareholders 
who now that they've had this all clarified for them might say, ooh, I don't like that kind of a corporate structure. Well, and let's talk about that, because that seems to be one of the key elements in, in, the, in the court decision here, uh, was that we may be looking at this, and those of us who maybe only have a rudimentary, if even that, uh, understanding of how corporate boards are supposed to work, we always think that, well, that's that's the whole purpose of the board of directors, isn't it? They're, they're the voting members, and they get to decide who's going to sit at the top of the table. And according to the, I guess, the, the, the rules that Rogers set up, and this is that Daddy Rogers, Ted Rogers, yeah. no, that's not the way that company works. And basically the, what the court was saying was he just followed the rules that his, his family and his company set up. Nothing wrong with that. You, you may not like it, but those are the rules. Right. So let's, let's repeat what, what's the basic argument here. There's uh, two classes of shares in the Rogers Corporation. The A shares are the ones who get to do all the voting. They get to determine who sits at the head table, hire the CEO, fire the CEO, make the chair, what have you. And then there are B class shares. Well, what Ted Rogers did, Daddy Rogers did, was he said the A class shares, the voting shares, are only going to be held by family members. 97.5% controlled by the family. We will sell shares to the public, so you and I can buy into Rogers, but we can't buy the A shares. We buy the non-voting B shares. So, Bill, when I teach governance, we typically say that a board of directors is there to represent the shareholders. Uh, but these would be the voting shareholders. So what we have is this unusual circumstance that the B-class shareholders do not have a voice at the table. They do not get to elect any of the directors who run the company. And what we've learned from the court ruling is it's, in essence, now Edward Rogers who decides who the independent board members of Rogers are going to be. That, to me, violates the basic principle of governance, that you want independent voices there, people who can see outside of a box, so to speak, uh, take a broader view of issues. And, and, again, because I teach this stuff, I think it's always healthy when there are some dissenting voices at, at a board. I, I, I would get worried if you have nine people on a board and they see everything exactly identically all the time, then do you really have independent advice? But the way Ted Rogers created this, these are really not so much independent directors as independent advisors who, as we now know, serve completely at the, uh, at the whim of whoever uh, controls the family trust. And today that's Edward Rogers. Uh, and as I was doing my research on this, I mean, I, I love this because it's educational for me. I learn new stuff all the time. Uh, and I'm, I'm getting a very quick lesson here on something called dual class share structures, mm -hmm. uh, which I know some people in the corporate world don't like. Uh, are there a lot of other companies that are structured in the same way, Marvin? Are there a lot of other companies? No. Um, uh, so I have to break your question into two chunks. Okay. Uh, in this case, the dual class structure uh, was voting versus non-voting. So there are many companies out there who might have different classes of shares. They may have an A class, a B class, a C class, a D class, but each of the classes typically have some voting rights attached to them. And usually why they have these different classes is that, well, when we started the company in 1922, we had those A-class shares. We needed to issue some new ones, so it was easier to come up with a new class, but we gave them the same rights as the A-class and so on and so forth. In this case, Ted Rogers specifically created two classes of shares with different rights. Uh, the B-class shares don't get to vote on anything. They don't get to determine strategy. 
as I jokingly said, you're along for the ride, but you can't touch the steering wheel. You're in the back seat, and you, you can't even be a backstreet driver. There's, a, in essence, a cone of silence over you. You can complain all you want. Nobody's obliged to listen to you. That structure is quite unusual. So having classes of shares is not unusual, but to have a class of shares which have no voting rights at all. So we typically see these either in family businesses that begin to expand and want to get some public money into the company, or we see it with a, a technology firm. So you have a, an entrepreneur like an Elon Musk or a Mark Zuckerberg. Same idea. It's my company, but I need some more cash. So I want the public to give me their cash, but I don't want them to control any direction of the company. So you buy those shares at your peril, Usually, I would like to have ownership rights, even if they're highly diluted. Even if I'm only one voice of a million shareholders, I'd rather have that than to be sitting silent during the meetings. And here's another organization that I just found out about this weekend, too, called the Canadian Coalition for Good Governance. Uh, and to your point, they don't like these, this whole idea of dual-class shares, and they say there should be alternatives, and they're pushing for change. Uh, and they point to Israel, which I guess forces a company to combine the shares if they're going to issue new ones. In other words, if we're going to, you know, 5,000 new shares, some of them have to be uh, those voting shares. I, but is Rogers actually going to do something like that? I mean, once you've got the hands of power and, and you're at the top of the table, why would you give that up, Marvin? Well, exactly. And in this case, Bill, I don't know who would force this. So if the five new independent directors said, now, okay, Edward, first thing, first mission now is we need to, to change the share structure, he'd say, oh, really? Let's see, let's replace you with Bill Kelly. I think Bill will listen to me a little better. And suddenly those people would go away. So there is no leverage against this existing structure to make them change, other than if a government changed the rule. Can I also say, Bill, that... Um, uh, another interesting wrinkle in this case was that the case was heard in British Columbia. Now, Rogers has got a big building in Toronto. They hold all their meetings in Toronto. The Rogers family live in Toronto, but Ted Rogers chose to incorporate the company in B.C. because B.C.'s rules around these corporate governance issues are different and, and dare I say, a little behind the time of a place like Ontario. So he specifically, Ted Rogers, specifically set out to find an area where he could do something like this. And uh, unless B.C. were to change their tune, I don't think there's any pressure on Ted Rogers. And can I also say that if B.C. did change their rules, chances are any existing companies would be grandfathered. The new rules would only apply to new companies. There wouldn't be anything to force the old companies. So we don't like this. Uh, can I also say that we don't like the idea that the chair of the board would be CEO? And, and I mentioned that to you. Because you'll remember this whole thing began over a power fight around who's the CEO of Rogers. Today is a gentleman named Joe Natale. Edward Rogers wanted to replace him. The board said no. Now today, Joe Natale is still there. I will not be shocked if this week uh, we hear that Mr. Natale is, is leaving the company. But I also wouldn't be shocked if Ed Rogers said, you know what? I'm going to make myself president of the company, CEO of the company, and suddenly we have a situation where the chair of the board is also the CEO. We don't like that. We think that should also be separated just so you get this independent thought. Quick question about this uh, when it comes to governance on this. Uh, and as you say, B.C.'s got a different set of rules than Ontario, than probably other provinces. Uh, some people are calling right now for a federal securities regulator. Such, I think the United States has that, where you know there's, there's a, a federal governance of this, and these are the rules that you all need to comply by. Uh, we don't have that. Is it time to have that conversation here? <laughs> well, I'm laughing because 
Uh, there have been calls for a federal regulator for the better part of 20 years. There you go. Uh, uh, you may have heard of something called the Ontario Securities Commission. Yeah. So they govern the rules in Ontario, but there's a B.C. Securities Commission. There's an Alberta Securities Commission. And, and Bill, I'm not joking, 20 years ago, people said this is silly, that we've got each province with its own securities regulator, and we compete against a country like the United States that has a national standard, or we comp- compete against Germany that has a national standard. We are well behind the times. The problem is, again, who is going to make that happen? Ontario says, yes, I hear it. So, okay, Alberta, you adopt our rules. Okay, Quebec, you adopt our rules. And they say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Why don't you adopt our rules? And there's been this squabbling for 20 years. Everyone thinks it's a good idea, but I don't know who's the change agent that's actually going to make that happen. Uh, and I don't know if it can be forced on them from outside. In other words, we wanted arm's length between the government and the security regulators. We don't want them to be beholding to whoever's in the federal government or the provincial government. So other than themselves coming together and say, it's time for us to do this, I'm assuming the governor of the Bank of Canada could say some strong words, but even he can't make this happen, and yet it is well overdue. should have been done two decades ago. Uh, we'll leave it there for now, Marvin. I'm sure there's more to come on this in the next little while. Thanks so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. Glad to be with you, Bill. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It's been a, an interesting uh, couple of days, a couple of weeks, I guess, really, uh, south of the border. Uh, U.S. President uh, Joe Biden has seen his uh, popularity ratings and his approval ratings uh, slip dramatically over the last little while. One of the key parts of that, of course, uh, was his, uh, his desire and his need to pass this monstrous uh, infrastructure bill uh, that he's been pushing for through the Congress, and he has had his problems. So, of course, on Saturday, uh, Congress finally passed the bill, and it was tight, 228 to 206. And, uh, well, the president badly needs, I guess, a victory lap at this stage. Uh, but is this enough? And is it going to turn the tide of public opinion? Joining us to talk about all of this is uh, Reggie Cicchini. Reggie, of course, is Washington correspondent for Global News in uh, the U.S. Capitol. Reggie, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Good morning. The good news is that, uh, that I guess, President Biden uh, got his infrastructure bill passed, uh, as we mentioned, by 228 to 206 vote, finally. Uh, but it wasn't the bill that he wanted. It's been watered down. As a matter of fact, it actually got divvied up in a couple of different bills. Uh, he desperately is looking for some uh, a boost here from public opinion. Is this going to get it done? Is this going to be a, a major step for him at this stage, Reggie? Look, it's possible, and it is just—it's uh, just one step. You're right. There, this was, you know, one of the bills that uh, that made its way through this kind of 1.2 trillion dollar infrastructure bill, and it is important. Uh, number one, because uh, it's something that he ran on. He promised to get billions of dollars, uh, trillions of dollars, injected into the economy by building things back like bridges uh, and 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 kind of infrastructure around the United States. Something that Donald Trump was unable to do during his four years in office. So this is a big moment. Uh, for Joe Biden could potentially help to tick up those approval numbers, because you got to remember, on day 100 of the Biden administration, he had an approval rating of 53.8 percent. And like you mentioned, those numbers are going down. That approval rating uh, day 293 in the administration is 42.5 percent because it has been so slow to try and get things done in this administration because of uh, kind of legislative roadblocks, most notably in the Senate. The other bill, though, this kind of social spending bill uh, that would deal with things like paid family leave uh, and things that would kind of help the average American, that has stalled. It is not going to pass the Senate, despite the fact that it may hit uh, the the House floor and pass a a vote there. 
So Biden's popularity is taking a hit because he promised to get things done, and it's just taking a lot longer than most people anticipated it would. I don't want to get too deeply into the political weeds here, but maybe you could explain to our listeners uh, why it's going to have trouble in the Senate. Because it, when you look at the numbers, you say, well, wait a second, the Democrats have a, a, a margin there. It's a, it's a slim lead, but they do have that. Uh, but it's, it's not just, uh, it's not just a, a stand-up-and-down vote, isn't it? I mean, there's a certain percentage that have to vote in favor of this. And, and the problem, as you've been reporting, Reggie, uh, you expect what you're going to get from Mitch McConnell, but some of the Democrats in the Senate are actually not supportive of this. Yeah, and, and look, kind of the, kind of to cut to the, the, the chase here, inside the Senate, it's not just a 50 plus one vote. You need to have a majority uh, of the House and there's a, rather of the Senate and you, there are 100 seats. So you need 60 percent of the Senate to be able to go on side and vote in favor, especially when it comes to bills having to do with appropriation uh, and money. Uh, and when you only have 50 seats in a Senate and your vice president needs to be the one who casts a tie-breaking ballot uh, vote, that's not going to do anything when you need 60. The secondary problem here is that you have moderate and right-leaning Democrats, namely Joe Manchin from Virginia, uh, West Virginia and Kirsten Cinema from the U.S. Southwest, who are holding up and dropping that ability to even get to 50 votes for the Democrats, partly because Joe Manchin is a Democrat from an incredibly uh, red-leaning state, uh, kind of a Trump plus 13 state, so he understands what his people want. But ultimately, uh, the, the support just isn't there for all of this kind of progressive spending. And it's, again, a problem within the Democratic Party that they simply want to kind of change how the country operates and how the Democratic Party operates overnight based on what the progressives want when the reality is there's a lot of wheeling and dealing and negotiating that needs to go on. You're ultimately not going to get uh, everything that you want, like Joe Biden is seeing and like Joe Biden has said. So are there problems for the Democratic Party? Yes. Is it weighing down on the president's popularity? Yes. Is time running out for the Democratic Party? Absolutely it is. That's why you're seeing such a concerted quick push here. Now, the reason the second bill didn't pass uh, is because Manchin and others said they wanted to see, I guess, a cost-benefit analysis. Is this really just a stalling tactic? I, I, or is Manchin actually considering maybe changing his vote and supporting this? Well, look, he's, he's mentioned that he's in favor of changing his vote if the price tag comes down. Because, look, this was a multi on the plus side of 2 and $3 trillion plan that included things uh, like paid family leave and kind of dumped billions upon billions of dollars into the environment. But at the end of the day, when you're someone like Joe Manchin from West Virginia, which is a very heavy coal dependent and coal mining state, pumping money into green energy is ultimately potentially going to cost you jobs in your state. So he wants to see things like that stripped out. And by stripping that out, it's going to lower the price tag. He won't give a top line number on what he wants to see. But every time something shows up, he still isn't voting in favor for it. So ultimately, the Democrats understand they need him on their side if they want to go through and kind of use, uh, you know, an archaic process to try and get this passed on the slim majority. But he needs to be involved in it and he needs to kind of approve of the numbers. And if the Democrats aren't willing to go any further south from where they are right now, they really do run a problem of not getting social spending planning passed before next year when it's really potentially going to be out of time for them. How does the Biden administration rationalize that, though? Because your point's well taken. I mean, he, you know, Biden did promise he was going to get this bill done. Uh, and, and there's some concerns about getting the economy going again. I know we talked about that again on the weekend, Reggie. But he also made a number of promises about environmental concerns. And, you know, the president was just over in Glasgow last week for that conference uh, speaking about that, too. And, and a guy like Manchin and I guess some of the, as you mentioned, some of the red Democrats, the Republican-leaning right-wing de- de- Democrats, are simply not going to be supportive of a lot of these environmental 
environmental concerns. So uh, is, is this bill doomed simply because there seems to be two elements here across purposes? A little bit, yeah. I mean, look, it's, it's going to be difficult for the president to get the social spending uh, plan going forward, partly due to the environment. But it all kind of comes back to, again, the things that are going to benefit Americans the most, something that, you know, Canadians might just take for granted because it's something that they get kind of as a given right to them, like paid family leave or maternity leave. In the United States, the Senate took that out of the bill when they sent it to the House. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi put paid family leave back into the bill. It's not a lot. It's four or six weeks, and it's only for select workers in the country. But it is, again, a red line for some of these more moderate Democrats that do not want to see uh, government funding going to something like paid family leave. So even if they're able to work their way through the environmental issues of this bill, something like paid family leave back in is going to make this bill dead on arrival. And remember, we are one year out from midterm elections in the United States where there is a strong chance that Democrats are going to lose their majorities in the House and the Senate. And if they fail to get this bill across, it's going to be more ammunition for Republicans to say, why would you keep Democrats around? They can't get things passed. Well, and let's talk about that, even though, the, the as you mentioned, the midterms may be still about a year or so away. Uh, I guess the pre-show for that were the gubernatorial elections just the other day. It did not go well for the Democrats, Reggie. It didn't go well for the Democrats. It did insofar as they won in New Jersey uh, uh, with, uh, with Governor uh, Phil Murphy taking a very slim win over uh, his Republican uh, opponent, Jack Cittarelli, who ultimately still has not conceded the race. He still believes that there was some kind of fraud that potentially stole that race from him. Nonetheless, Democrats kept New Jersey. What they lost and what they lost big was Virginia, where uh, Republican candidate Glenn Youngkin not only won that race, but he won it by a far larger uh, kind of margin than what Democrats had been anticipating and looking for and and really what the polls were even showing was going to happen. Uh, And it kind of has raised a couple of questions here. Did Democrats put forth the best candidate? Did they use Uh, A former governor, Terry McAuliffe, who might have represented the older echelon of the Democratic Party. And was it just not what the rest of the of of the state wanted? Or did Democrats spend too much time simply trying to dig up the corpse of the Trump presidency and try to tie the Republicans to that by not and, and therefore not talking about, you know, kitchen table politics, which is what the Republicans did. There's a lot of reasons here why Democrats might have lost. Arguably, the Republicans won because they stayed focused and they stayed on message. They used fear mongering. They were able to draw in some of those soft Democrats, some of those moderates. But ultimately here, Republicans won and Democrats are now fearing that this is going to be alarms, uh, sounding alarms for next year in, uh oh, we lost a reliably Democratic state. Is this going to happen again? Well, that was an interesting race because, I mean, the Democrats, as you mentioned, uh, and as you reported as this happened, they, they, took all the big guns out there. I mean, Biden campaign there, Kamala Harris campaign there, uh, former President Obama campaign there. Uh, I mean, they did everything they thought they were going to have to do to get this this race in Virginia won. Uh, and as you mentioned, uh, you know, they, they, they did use the fear-mongering thing. They tried to, to tie the, the Republican, of course, to Trump. And I know he was a Trump supporter previously. Uh, but he did a pretty decent job of simply separating himself. He, he didn't mention Trump at all. There was no allusion to that at all. So was were the Democrats even using the right strategy there? Well, look, I think that it's going to be kind of scrutinized right now, especially uh, as they head towards you know the waning weeks of the uh, Ralph Northam uh, governorship before the Republicans take control early next year. Democrats are going to have to look back and see what did we do wrong. Glenn Youngkin run a camp, ran a campaign about education. But how often, especially in the United States, uh, do you see education kind of being a front burner topic 
uh, for any kind of large-scale election. That's not something at the local level. He kept it in a, a kind of a focus where residents of Virginia may want to get involved by talking about taxes, by talking about education, by talking about things that weren't linking politics back to Washington. And instead of focusing on things that people might want to talk about, Democrats uh, spent the entire campaign focusing on Donald Trump and bringing Donald Trump's name back in. Glenn Youngkin kept him at arm's length. He did not campaign with him. He did not take uh, kind of verbal endorsements uh, towards the, you know, the waning ends uh, of the of the race from Donald Trump. He, he played the Donald Trump playbook, but he kept it kind of aside to show Republicans and to show the, the, the base in Virginia, I can be a Republican that doesn't act exactly like Donald Trump. But I'm also far different from the Democrats who can only focus on Donald Trump. So there's going to be some serious lessons here for Democrats to, to go forward with in if we can lose a reliably blue state by talking about Donald Trump. What is it going to mean for us when we're in a battleground state where if we keep bringing up Donald Trump, it's just going to push people to the Republicans? Nothing changes public opinion like uh, getting a job and putting food on the table and having a little bit more money in your pocket than you thought, uh, which is part of what Biden was trying to do all along by getting this infrastructure bill passed. Now that he's got some semblance of it passed, ready, what are the possibilities of getting shovels in the ground, getting some jobs created, and get people thinking about a positive economy again? There has to be a pretty quick turnaround here, doesn't there? Yeah, look, once the bill is signed by Joe Biden, which is likely going to happen in the next couple of days, you could start to see that money appropriated out to the states and you could start to see tenders going out. You could start to see shovels in the ground, maybe not on the big massive projects like massive big transit and subway building infrastructure projects, but by getting uh, interstates rebuilt and by seeing bridges uh, start to be patched back up again, that's going to be a positive sign that the Democrats will be able to run on to say, look, for four years, this country started to crumble underneath its crumbling infrastructure. Here we are with President Biden now passing this massive multi-trillion dollar bill. This is good for the economy. Also trying to ride the wave of how uh, the U.S. has been emerging out of the pandemic by saying, look, the numbers were getting better at the beginning of the presidency. The numbers are much better than where they were, uh, you know, 11 months ago look at where we are now. So he can ride the wave of infrastructure. He can ride the wave of vaccines. He can ride the wave uh, of a build back uh, economy coming out of the pandemic. That could be the numbers and the surge that he needs heading into next year uh, when a lot of these midterm uh, uh, states that are holding midterms really start to put their campaigns uh, on the ground in key swing states and in key cities. This is going to be a big moment for Biden if he can continue this momentum. The X factor, of course, is still going to be Donald Trump. I mean, you know, as you and I have discussed in some of your past uh, visits on the program here, uh, those that thought that Trump was just going to go away if he lost that last election, uh, it didn't happen. Uh, he's out sp making speeches again and campaigning, as you mentioned, for some candidates right now. Uh, the speculation is that uh, even if he doesn't run, he's still going to try to become the kingmaker. Is there a concern in the Democratic circles that, that it's still going to be Trump they have to defeat in two years? I mean, look, I think the Republican Party is going to have to deal with uh, with their own kind of monsters in the shadows that that exist because of Donald Trump, because you have bigger name Republicans that are once again going to jump in the race beyond 2022 through the presidential in 2024. Someone like the former secretary of state, Mike Pompeo, someone like Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. These are Trump supporters. 
but ultimately will have to distance themselves from Donald Trump if they want to be the one who takes the, the reins in the party and try to kind of push back on that kingmaker-esque style that Donald Trump has, whether or not he's in or out of the race. Republicans are going to have to deal with this because otherwise they're going to become that party of infighting and that party of disarray, which could benefit Democrats by saying, why would you want this if you have Donald Trump either as your front person or as the one behind the scenes trying to pull the strings? This is going to be a difficult moment for Republicans who... Who, who essentially bowed down before a king for four years and now have to say, well, we did that, but we didn't really mean it. Put me here now because I'm the one who can actually fix things and move things forward. Tumultuous times down there, and it's going to have an impact uh, not just on U.S., but, of course, on global economies and politics as well. So we'll be watching with great interest for your reports uh, from Washington. Reggie, as always, thanks so much for this. Great talking with you again today. Thank you. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Speaking of the premier, raised a lot of eyebrows and and I think caused a great deal of consternation uh, last week also when he uh, maintained that there was not going to be uh, a mandated vaccination program for healthcare workers, uh, notwithstanding the fact that an awful lot of people in the field had asked very strongly uh, that he did that. Uh, He's not going to do that, and it's uh, causing, uh, I think, a a great deal of legitimate concern. There's a great piece uh, in the Globe and Mail uh, that talks about that. The, the title is called Many Ontario Hospitals Are Instituting COVID-19 Vaccine Requirements in Absence of Ford Provincial Mandates. Uh, uh, Carly Weeks is the health reporter for the Globe and Mail who authored uh, the story, joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Uh, Carly, thank you so much. I'm glad you could join us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, great article. I think it really underscores an awful lot of the concerns that we've heard from people uh, in the healthcare field, the Ontario Hospital Association, and so many others that ha- were pleading. And, and I think that's pretty a pretty strong word, but it might be very apt in this situation. Pleading for the province to do something about this, because uh, the message that we've been getting is we're not out of the woods here yet. What, what did you hear as you talked to, to the folks that you did before you wrote the article? Mm-hmm. Well, absolutely, that reflects uh, things that I heard. Um, there's basically yeah, this desperation among healthcare institutions to have a province-wide mandate brought in. Um, healthcare workers have been through so much during this pandemic. Um, they have weathered this storm before there were vaccines. They've been going to work every day, exposing themselves, and they're saying, look, we want to see this thing through. We want to end this pandemic. Please bring in a province-wide mandate so we can protect patients. Um, patients don't really have an option. They can't, uh, you know, pick and choose. You know, if you want to go to a restaurant um, and ask if your server's been vaccinated um, and then you choose not to, you know, go to that restaurant if someone's not vaccinated, that's that's a choice that you have. If you're a hospital patient, you don't have that luxury. And they're saying we need a mandate to protect patients because what's going to happen and what's happening in the absence of a province-wide mandate um, Places are making up their own rules, and in some institutions where they're allowing unvaccinated workers to remain on staff, um, there are fears, legitimate fears, that unvaccinated workers will simply move to those institutions for for a job. So if you get fired because you're not vaccinated at Hospital A, then you can go to Hospital B and continue working so long as you know do some rapid testing during the week. Uh, And we know that this is not a foolproof um, scenario. There's plenty of opportunity for a person to test positive uh, after taking a rapid test and, and infecting a patient. So a lot of concern here, particularly as you know we see cases rise, uh, weather's getting colder, and a number of other of, of other indicators raising red flags. 
you also addressed something else that, that I was so looking forward to, and, and that was uh, questioning and, and challenging the assertion that the Premier made uh, last week when he decided not to go forward with the mandate, uh, that he he said, if, and I'm paraphrasing here, that if we did this and people had you know could not work because of the, they, they did not get the vaccine, tens of thousands of healthcare workers uh, would be leaving the healthcare field and there'd be cancelled surgeries and people wouldn't be able to get the healthcare that they deserve. And I know a lot of people in the media when the Premier you made that announcement. Say, well, 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 where did you get those numbers from? Well, you you talked to those healthcare providers. What did you find? Um, I found that there is no basis to those claims. Um, you know, it's fine to be concerned uh, about the healthcare system. Obviously, we want people to be able to get the surgeries and the procedures that they need. We have such a backlog now. Um, but based on everyone I've talked to, and I'm talking large institutions, small ones, and everything in between, um, there's. There are um, there's no basis to the fact that vaccine mandates are driving you know tens of thousands of people out of the workforce. We're seeing a couple of hundred people uh, you know at best. So for instance, Unity Health, one of the a very large employer in Toronto, I think three major hospitals, um, they have like I think less than two percent of their staff on unpaid leave. Uh, because of a vaccine mandate that was recently brought in, one hospital told me that this is it's akin to the numbers that they might see uh, of employees calling sick every day. This is something they deal with all of the time, and and we should add that the number of actual clinical staff. So we're talking when these when we're talking about um, people who are pl- being placed on unpaid leave or being terminated, um, plenty of them are in non-clinical roles. So in terms of the actual people who are front-facing, um, you know, providing patient care, there's an even smaller fraction who are actually um, you know out of a job right now, based on the numbers and uh, that I've seen and people that I. I've talked to. Um, so certainly um, there is there is a questions about what evidence they're using. The, the Premier and the Health Minister both declined uh, to say where they got th- this information from, who are they talking to, what hospitals are saying they're concerned uh, about a vaccine mandate being brought in province-wide. Um, the Ontario Hospital Association has been talking to every hospital and according to what they're saying, pretty much everybody's on the same page. Uh, they want vaccine mandates brought in perhaps with different uh, sort of penalties for, for employees. That's where some debate seems to be. But uh, everyone seems to be on the same page. It's just the province is not listening, it appears. I, I forget what the numbers were, because when you talked about the Ontario Hospital Association, something like 145 of 160 uh, member hospitals said that please do the mandate. And and you the, the, the health, Unity Health numbers that you just talked about, for our listeners outside uh, the area, that's uh, that includes St. Mike's Hospital in Toronto, St. Joe's Health Centre, uh, and the uh, Providence Healthcare System. Uh, 8,500 full-time and part-time staff, only 171 have been placed on unpaid leave. And as you say, some of those are in the office and clerical positions anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, mm-hmm. But but what I guess frustrating these people, and as I've talked to them over the last couple of days too, though, Carly, is, is, is like you say, the province doubles down on this. The health minister, who's also the deputy premier, Christine Elliott, as, as you mentioned in the piece, said, well, some hospitals have called and complained. And, and of course, they, there's no proof of that, and she wouldn't name who they are. It's, it's the oldest political game in the book. You know, people are saying, hey, you know what, they, and Donald Trump <laughs> used to do this all the time. And, and, of course, you know, those that wanted to believe him would gravitate to that. But there was absolutely no evidence to, to back this up. But I mean, if you ever want to, you know, start a rumor or to try to substantiate a fact, just say, well, people are telling me, or, hey, we've had calls. Uh, all right, show me the calls. Show me the, they're not there. They're not there for us to show. But it, it's, it's, it's validating what they're saying when they get to the podium. Mm-hmm, exactly. And the fact that they're not willing to discuss, I mean, and we're not even talking naming names or anything, you know, I mean, they don't want to necessarily put a hospital on the spot. I understand that. But there, there really doesn't appear to be um, any substance to a lot of these claims. Um, you know, the, the Ontario Hospital Association has, uh, as, you know, as you alluded to, presented the province with a letter saying, here's how a mandate can work. Um, and here's how we can avoid a Quebec type 
situation, you know, where they had to back off of their mandate. They're saying, look, don't have a hard deadline. Maybe make it a little bit more um, flexible so that we can keep our health institutions going and encourage people to get vaccinated. And certainly in those institutions that have broadened mandates, like the number of people that are vaccinated is so high. I think it does show that there are some people who are just kind of hanging back and waiting. They don't feel the urgency to get vaccinated. And then once they're told to, they're saying, all right, fine, I'll do it. You know, so um, there's... Uh, there is strong uh, evidence and a lot of public backing for a mandate. Um, and I think it just raises a lot of questions about why there is such resistance from the province to listen to the healthcare institutions that have been weathering this storm. Carly, what kind of feedback are you getting? And I'm glad you, you talked about this, uh, about some of the arbitrary deadlines that the province set up. And, and you mentioned, for instance, the Premier even mentioned uh, a, a couple of days ago that uh, probably by mid-January or maybe February, you probably won't even need proof of vaccination. And, and saying that you know, by March, you probably won't even need to wear masks. And, and uh, the, the healthcare professionals I've talked to say, where did he get those numbers? Where is he making those predictions? There, there's no science behind that. That those, those seem to be political announcements as opposed to medical announcements yes uh, that's it, it that does appear to be the case because at this point everyone that i've spoken to they feel cautiously optimistic about the road ahead but we know from everywhere else on earth that has you know and from the mistakes we've made in the past the second you you loosen things up too much you get rid of masks you do whatever you're going to do you're going to see cases start to explode you're going to put your healthcare system at risk and you're going to put vulnerable people at risk who don't need to be put at risk we're at a very great place in canada where we have plenty of vaccine we're very privileged um, but kids can't get vaccinated yet we're waiting on those vaccines to get approved we need to do our utmost to protect vulnerable immune compromised people the elderly kids and um this continual sort of obsession with just dropping mandates and restrictions before we're ready we know that it actually ends up hurting the economy it hurts everybody in the long run you know um everyone in ontario is well familiar with the fact that you know toronto um, and parts of ontario had some of the longest lockdowns in the world um things that probably didn't need to happen had we just been a bit more proactive in, in, from the beginning um so by giving everyone who's sitting on the fence and out saying well just hang on till january and then you won't need to have a vaccine passport anymore um yeah a lot of healthcare officials are and um professionals are very disappointed uh, and they feel really let down by these policy announcements well, as you point out in the piece, you know, for anybody that, that listens to what I had to say over the last couple of days of your piece in the, in the Globe and Mail, so now you're just to be in a Debbie Downer. Uh, case numbers are going up in Ontario, and nobody seems to be paying much attention to that. But, you know, a trickle can become a flow very quickly. We see that happen in the first three waves of this. Uh, and I don't understand why the government seems to be oblivious to the fact that there is a, a at this point, small but steady increase in the number of new cases. Mm-hmm. Yes, the troubling thing with COVID is that you're absolutely right. Once you start to see an increase, uh, things do start to grow exponentially if left unchecked. So, you know, what, what is a small increase today can very quickly become very huge and unmanageable. And it was around this time last year where uh, we started to see the wave three really get out of control. We don't want to go back to that. Um, and again, you know, this is um, a series of policy decisions that can get us here and a series of policy decisions that can help guide us out. And, um, when we do think about those cases, I mean, we're we're at a place and a stage where a lot of people are feeling very confident. The messaging that we're hearing from government is that this thing is almost behind us. Just hang on a bit longer. Vaccine mandates are on their way out, you know, kind of thing. Um, when I think that what we really need to be uh, letting people know is that, yes, while we're 
while we're in a better position than we have been, we still need to be cautious and careful, especially if we want to avoid future lockdowns and future problems. I mean, we basically have removed almost all restrictions. Um, we've seen how this goes in other jurisdictions. There's some parts of Europe right now that are seeing massive case rises. Um, and let's not forget, there's still a segment of the population that's completely unvaccinated, um, and that's going to lead to a lot more COVID cases. You know, and again, this is this is why there is still alarm in the medical community. Um, not fear; they're trying not to fear monger. They're saying, look. We have vaccines. We're in a better position. But unless we have a lot more people getting vaccinated, booster shots getting rolled out to the vulnerable, and some restrictions in place, this thing could uh, continue to spiral into a very bad place. Well, especially because, as you say, first of all, the the, the, the protocols have been relaxed. But, but I'm noticing, Carly, and I'm sure you have too, uh, that even those relaxed protocols are being ignored. I mean, you know, I, I was at the Tiger Cat game on, on uh, the, the weekend, of course, at, at Tim Horton Field. And the rule is, just as it is a BMO field and the Air Canada Centre, is you wear your mask. You, first of all, show proof of vaccination to get in. You wear your mask until you get to your seat. If you're going to have a, a beer or something, by all means, you can take the mask off. And But if you're going to the concourse or anything else, I, I went up another concourse level and, and I'd say about 60 to 70 percent of the people were wandering around there with no masks. Well, that's not mm-hmm. supposed to be the case. And, of course, some poor guy who's, you know, a part-time security guard is not going to enforce that. They're not going to throw you out of the stadium. It's going to carry on. Well, th- this is a recipe for exactly what you're talking about, though, isn't it, to start to see these numbers go back up again? And we'd all be scratching our heads saying, gee, how did that happen? Well, it's, it's yeah. on us, isn't it? You know, it, it really is. And I mean, I think, I mean, as much as every individual is responsible for making their own choices, of course, and deciding, you know, whether or not to wear a mask, but I think there is a pervasive sense that things are back to normal. Uh, funny, my husband was at that same game and made the same comment about the masklessness. Well, um, yeah. And, uh, but I also think, you know, let's not forget a lot of people who are just, um, you know, it's now you look at social media and everyone's back to doing, you know, indoor family gatherings or gatherings with extended friends and family. And of course, that's what we want to see. But I think that are we um, being vigilant or asking people, have you been vaccinated? Um, Because we know that if you haven't been vaccinated, you're at a greater risk of catching and spreading COVID. So um, I think that this whole idea of keeping social gatherings outside, being really cautious has gone out the window. And um, that could explain part of this trend as well, right? Like, yeah, we just kind of let our guard down. Um, and, and again, and even if you are vaccinated, you're at risk of catching and spreading COVID. It's just you're probably not going to get very sick yourself. But you can still be a carrier. The risks are less, of course. But again, this idea that this thing is not over, but we're acting as though it is, right? And then we think back to these healthcare workers who are begging for a mandate so that they can protect vulnerable patients, and you just kind of think, well, what are we doing here? Well, especially because, you know, those that are, are the experts are, are, are starting to get a little bit skeptical, too. And I can remember just before the third uh, wave really got, you know, crazy about uh, talking to some of the folks at the Ontario Science Table, you know, and, and and it was it was very very frustrating as as you know Dr. Peter Uni was ready to resign he says you know they are not listening to us you know they said the government mandate is we will listen to the science and and I know what people like like Dr. Uni and, and Dr. Furness and others that we've had on the program and I know you've talked to a lot over the last 18 or 19 months are saying we are the science and they're not listening to what we're saying it's got to be a very frustrating experience Definitely. Um, you know, especially because they, they, you know, we're casting these healthcare professionals as heroes who've gotten us through this storm. Um, and they're saying, look, we're, we're asking you for help now. We, we need help and, and they're not being listened to. And, um, you know, when we have plenty of science and evidence to back a certain decision or policy move, 
there is, I think, widespread frustration when it's not being adopted because it may not be a politically popular move. Um, you know, and all political parties are guilty of the same thing, of course. We're speaking about Doug Ford's government right now, and we've seen time and again how for whatever reason, if they feel as though it's more politically advantageous for them to do a certain thing or to not bring in certain measures, um, it causes such a problem that they end up having to do it. I mean, this is the government that said we're not we're not going to have a vaccine passport, right? Because it will do more harm than good. And of course, um, as the backlash grew, we brought in passports. So instead, there's this um, request, I think, <laughs> you know, a desperate plea among healthcare professionals to just do this now. Uh, instead of having to, you know, backtrack and do it later, just get this mandate in, help protect everybody, make this thing go away faster. And that's kind of what we all want. Well, because the record here is that the government seems to drag their heels on just about all of these things. And as you mentioned, invariably, they end up having to do exactly what they didn't want to do in the first place because the numbers are so high. I mean, is, is there a sense of deja vu with the health experts you've talked about that says, you know, yeah, we've got the vaccine, but, you know, it, it may not be as bad as it was before, but that doesn't mean it can't happen again. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and um, saying, you know, what, why does this continue to happen? Why aren't we learning from our mistakes? And, and especially now, we're talking about the, you know, the biggest group of unvaccinated people, our kids, um, and this whole idea that kids will be fine. Well, we know some kids won't be fine. There's a subset who will go on to develop severe illness, who will be hospitalized, who might get long COVID and a number of other health issues. So, you know, this, this um, um, feeling that we're not doing enough to protect young people um, and that we're catering to those who are kind of over this and maybe don't want to get vaccinated and all of that. I mean, there is there, there's a lot of frustration. And, and it should also be noted that the people who are unvaccinated are the ones who are at greatest risk right now. Um, and I'm talking here about the kids, but also the adults who are choosing not to get vaccinated. Um, it's no longer, they say, if when you're going to get or if you're going to get COVID, it's when you're going to get COVID. Um, and if you're not vaccinated, that, you know, it's going to come looking for you and, and you could end up in the hospital too. So just this idea that we want a government, these experts are saying, a government that is um, promoting vaccination, telling people that this is what's going to help steer us out of this, that, that kind of leadership that really puts public health first. But that's not coming. And I mean, this is when we really do look to our political leaders and say, look, you got to show us the way here. Uh, and, and basically they're saying, well, we'd kind of like to see this happen. But if you choose not to, well, we understand that. Uh, and yet we see the numbers going up here. There's, it's it's a, 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 it's a, a, well, it's a hypocritical message, really. And I think it's causing a great deal of frustration. Uh, and what I'm hearing from, you know, the, the, as you did when you were doing the preparation for the piece that's in the Globe and Mail, uh, some of the people that are losing the healthcare, are leaving the healthcare field right now are not leaving uh, because of the work. They're leaving because of the, frust the frustration. They say, look, at the numbers keep going up. We know how to beat this thing, and we're not getting the direction to do this. Uh, but they do pr praise, oftentimes, the administration of some of these healthcare facilities that you've talked about for being proactive. Uh, I'm sure you saw the quote from, uh, from Robert Kaiser from Hamilton Health Science here in Hamilton uh, that actually talked to his unvaccinated staff and said, get over yourselves. You know, the, the greater good here is looking after your patients, so that means getting vaccinated. Uh, yet that's not the sort of government, uh, the, the decision you're actually going to hear from government. So it's, it's, it's mixed messaging right now. And then you've got celebrities, you know, like Joe Rogan, the talk show host, and Aaron <laughs> Rodgers, the quarterback, who, by the way, is Joe Rogan's new best friend, I guess, because yeah, uh, they're both yeah. unvaccinated. Uh, and, and, you know, people see that stuff and they say, well, if they're not doing it and he's still healthy, I suppose. Well, I guess I don't need to. Exactly. And, and it's very, very troubling when you see people with a platform who are promoting ideas that are completely um, off base and not rooted in science. Um, 
we're in an era where everyone is kind of choosing their own reality and their own version of events to believe. There's so much misinformation out there. Um, I've been advocating for a long time. You know, a, a lot of experts are saying we're just not good enough in Canada at getting really proactive, good public health messaging out there. We have plenty of good information on some really boring government websites, but you know, where's our really good social media campaign that can encourage people to get vaccinated or answer their questions about why uh, vaccines are safe or you know. Whatever questions people may have, um, there is this growing feeling that we need to be more proactive in giving people good information and countering some of these messages that just they don't seem to go away. You know, and they're all false and they're all wrong. But we need to do something more to counter them. Cardi, great work on the piece here, and, and thank you for the great work that you're doing to bring that message from the experts, the people that have been studying this, uh, and not as a science experiment, but for the last 25 years, ever since SARS was in this area, uh, which is where vaccines were developed anyway, and that, of course that's part of your reporting as well. Uh, check out the piece. Uh, it's uh, it's called Bending Ontario Hospitals Instituted COVID-19 Vaccination Requirements. Uh, Carly Weeks, health reporter for the Globe and Mail. As always, appreciate your time today. Stay well, and uh, we'll talk again soon, I hope. Thank you for having me. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.